I'm originally from Mexico and I moved to the United States. I got married over there and my marriage was for three years and ended up in divorce. And I didn't have a home, I didn't have a job, I didn't have that much money. I wrote this letter to God asking for direction and light in my life. My friends Denise and Renato invited me to Cornerstone and since the first day that I got here, that's when Jesus saved me and I accept him as my savior. I'm so very grateful to Jesus for rescuing me and giving me a new life. Good morning, Cornerstone. How you guys doing? So good to see you here. Want to add my uh, two cents of happy Thanksgiving to you guys, but I thought we needed to start off uh, and, and get a couple of things straight. Uh, maybe a little time of confession before the, the sermon to get our hearts right. How many of us just need to get it off our chest? Uh, gluttony was committed this past week. Anyone? There, you're there with me? All right. There's a few of you who need to confess too much football. Anyone? Anyone? Uh, Black Friday, you spent way too much money. Okay, the ones who really need to repent, all three. You did all three. You committed them. You just want to get sort of ground level heart right before we go any further. Um, I can, can confess to two of them, but I have not been shopping at all, trying to avoid it if at all possible. So, um, 12 years ago, Thanksgiving week, uh, I was a single guy, uh, had been a pastor for a few years, and I was at a point in life where I just needed to be married, not wanted to anymore, I just needed to be married. Went away for a week to the beach for a time of just sort of seeking God, praying and saying, God, I need a wife now. <laughs> and single people, I want to tell you, be careful what you ask for, because he may answer it. And I think it's interesting because, it's, I mean, I love my wife. I'm madly in love with her to this day, as, as I have been for the last 11 plus years. But even if you're madly in love with your wife, there still are disturbances that come through marriage. Can I get an amen, guys? I mean, your time is no longer your time. There are some things that happen, no matter if, if your marriage is absolutely perfect, there are disturbances that come into our lives when we get married, when we make that kind of commitment. But my argument is the best things in life come with disturbances. A couple years after we were married, we had our first child, and it was amazing for the first three hours. <laughs> and then we had to go to sleep that night. And 32 diapers later, we're trying to figure out what have we done. Uh, we were one of those couples that we had three children under the age of three, uh, which all in diapers for a short time, and it was crazy. And it was one of those things where it was amazing and it was terrible at the same time. You know what I mean? It was like the best and the hardest thing that we could possibly go through at the same time. But then again, my argument is the best things in life come with disturbances. We think that's true. We know that's true for those of us who are married and we have kids. We know it's true for those two areas. So, for something that's even more important than those two things, our relationship with Jesus Christ, don't you think disturbances would be just as true, just as real, and to be expected in our relationship with Jesus Christ? And so here's what I'm going to invite us to do. 
I'm going to invite you to pray a crazy prayer as we begin. And would you pray to God that his Holy Spirit today would disturb you? That this week he would disturb you, break the mold, maybe the callous, the calluses that have been formed on your heart or your life or your will, that he would disturb you and do in you what only he can do. Let's pray real quick. God, this is my prayer. And I pray as men and women are, are agreeing with this prayer that we would understand, God, that you do some of your greatest works as you disturb us and as you disrupt the normal course of our lives. And God, I pray that you would do great things, amazing things today as we in faith pray this prayer, as we look to Jesus and we just are grateful and appreciative of, of the cross and the empty tomb. And God, we pray today that you would move in power. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. Last week we spoke, we started this series Grateful, and we talked about uh, the story of the early church and its infancy and what God was doing and how God was moving in this early church and, and how he, there were things that they were devoted to that we should be devoted to. There were things that were going on that, that we should sort of renew a commitment ourselves personally to these things so that we could experience the move of God like they did in the early church. Uh, that's Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going into the temple. There's this lame man who is crying out to them, and he's crying out, please give me some money, give me some help. Peter looks at him in the eyes, and he says, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and what? Walk. Get up and walk. And he did just that. And a miracle happened. Uh, God used Peter and his boldness and his faith and healed this man on the spot. And the man got up and walked out to a place he had been carried in year after year after year. But not everybody was happy with the miracle that was done at the hands of Peter. Not everybody was excited to see the work of God going on in their midst. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they get into a little bit of trouble. So let's jump in. Verse 1, here's, what, here's what's happening. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Not just disturbed, they were greatly disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, this one group in particular I want to talk about, the Sadducees. These are religious leaders of that day. They, they were more known for what they were against than what they were for. They were known to be against anything supernatural. They were known to be against angels. They just didn't believe in angels. They were against miracles. They did not believe miracles happened. And so they're furious at Peter and John as they're speaking to this large crowd, and they're furious for a couple of reasons. Number one, they, Peter and John did not have the resume. They did not have the pedigree. They weren't authorized teachers. They shouldn't be doing this. And so these religious leaders are very mad and upset at what's going on. And secondly, they're upset because they're teaching about the resurrection. They're teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're compelling the people, admonishing the people to believe in Christ. The very thing the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection was the, the hinge of the preaching of this message. And so they are greatly disturbed at what's going on. It means they're troubled. They're offended. 
They're furious at what's going on. So you can keep reading in verses 3 through 7. Basically, they have these guys arrested. They throw them into prison. They want to know what's going on. And they're demanding to know by what power, what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? What's the source of your power? What's the source of your authority? They want to know because they want to know what's going on. They're not denying that a miracle happened. They're wanting to know how did they do it. So Peter goes into this explanation where he basically makes four declarations of Jesus, of who Jesus is, that I think are, are for me sort of a, just a, a grateful response to him, an understanding of who Jesus is. And I want us to look at these four things today. And, and hopefully as you hear them explained and you study the scriptures yourselves, you're, you will feel gratitude begin to rise in your heart. Worship begin to come from your lips of who Jesus is and what he has done. So let's look in verse 8. Peter responds to them. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And he, he doesn't, in this moment, back down at all. This is some of the first persecution the church has received. And in the midst of persecution, Peter has an opportunity to either sort of withdraw and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I was being a little bit too bold, I'll stop it. Or he has a chance to stand for something, to stand for truth. Now, if you know the story of Peter, you know this. He's already fallen to this test once. He's already failed this test royally one time. Jesus told him, he said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the time that I'm betrayed and arrested. You're going to deny me three times before they get me. And Peter says, no, 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 not me. I'll never deny you. But three times Peter denies Jesus. Peter says, I don't even know that, man. I don't even know who you're talking about. And here Peter is given the gift of a second chance. Have you ever been in need of a second chance? Peter here is given that gift of a second chance. He'd failed this test one time, but here he's given another opportunity to see how he's going to respond, to see what difference Christ has made in his life. And, and, and we can just say this, even based off of last week's sermon, Christ has made all the difference in Peter's life. Since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that, that Peter is a new man. The Holy Spirit has come and filled him up. He is powerful. He is bold in his declaration. So in this moment, when, when he's faced with some opposition, faced with persecution, Peter doesn't back down anymore. Peter takes a stand. And, and here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to grasp today. God will sometimes allow disturbances to come into our lives. And those disturbances will either make us harder, or they'll make us more like him. See, when the religious leaders, their disturbances come, things aren't working out their way, they have opinions, but, but things aren't going the way they think they should go. They are greatly disturbed, meaning they're hardened, resistant to the work of God. But you see what happens in the life of Peter here, the disturbances come, and his character is shown, and he looks more like Christ than ever before. But it's not because of who Peter is. And Peter's quick to sort of pass that on to say, it's not about me, it's about him. And here's the four things that Peter refers to. First of all, it's in verse 11, 
And he says this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. So number one, the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucified Lord. This declaration that Jesus is the one who was crucified. You can read about this in many places in Scripture. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand what that means? It means that God took the initiative. He didn't wait for you to respond. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He didn't wait for you to clean your life up. He took the initiative, and while we were still sinners, in our sin, in our mess, God sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sins because he loves you that much. Because he cares for you to such a degree that it was worth sacrificing his son so that you and I could be set free. Now, now here's what we need to understand. God doesn't forgive us just because he loves us. He doesn't forgive us just because he loves us. It's not like, oh, oh, that's okay, I love you, just be good, run on, don't do it again. He doesn't forgive us just because he's gracious. It's like, oops, I'm sorry, don't do that again. Just He forgives us because he's just. He forgives us because he's merciful. See, if, if God forgave us out of love and grace, it would just be out of the kindness of his heart. It would mean that there wasn't really a price to be paid. But what scripture tells us is that sin comes with a great price. That every one of us has sin in our life, and that is something that we owe. It's a debt to God greater than we can afford. And so instead of, us, instead of God charging us for something we could never afford, God said, I'll make the payment myself. Jesus is that payment. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul talking. And Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is Paul who wrote a chunk of the New Testament saying, This is of first importance of everything I've written. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. That he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. But you got to get this clear. He says, Christ died for our sins. Not that he had done anything wrong. He died in our place. I, I read a story about this man, Chuck Colson. And I've been a, a follower and a fan of Chuck Colson for a long time. He's um, the head of this ministry called Prison Fellowship. And a few years ago, he was in a prison in Brazil. This prison had been turned over to Christians 20 years prior. And this was a really unique prison because they set it up with, with Christian principles and Christian uh, um, practices at the very heart of what this prison was about. So uh, there were only two people to staff this whole entire prison. Not a guard on every block. There were two people to oversee the whole entire prison. Every prisoner was given an accountability partner. And so they would sort of hold each other accountable. Hey, do you feel like killing anybody today? Nope. Do you? <laughs> hey, do you want to go? Whatever. They had an accountability partner they would, they would work together with. Each uh, prisoner would go to chapel or take a course on character development every single week. It's just a part of prison life and what it was like. Every prisoner had to volunteer with a family outside the prison to just learn those family dynamics and instill healthy values in them. 
The recidivism rate for these kind of prisoners returning, typically in Brazil, was about 75%. In this particular prison, it was 4%. Only 4%. So one day, Chuck Colson shows up to, to the prison, and, and one of the prisoners is giving him a tour of the facility. And, and there's this room, this special room, and the prisoner was saying, that used to be our isolation room. You know, people would get in trouble while they're in prison, and they would be sent in solitary confinement in this room all by themselves. And he said, it used to be. It used to be our isolation room. Would you like to see it now? And Colson was like, absolutely, show it to me. And so he said, he swung the door open, and there was this gorgeous uh, wood carving of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And the prisoner looked at Colson, and he said, he's doing time for all of us. He's doing time for all of us. He's, he's, he's doing the time that we deserve. That's what the scriptures tell us, that we've got to comprehend what a powerful truth it is that Jesus Christ, on his body, on a tree, took the payment for our sin. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to show our gratitude, how grateful we are to Christ as we worship through communion. But as you hold that cracker in your hand and as you meditate in a few minutes, I just pray that you'll just remember he did it for you. He did it out of a great love for you. He did it to display that there's no sin that you can commit that he can't forgive you of. There's no length of time that you can run away from him that he would say, that's too long, you've been gone too long. As you hold that little cracker in your hand that you would remember, he did it for me. He took my sins on his body on that tree for me. As you hold that, that cup in your hand that you would remember, his blood was shed for your sins, for my sins. And I pray that gratitude would well up in your heart and you would just remember the love, the grace, the mercy, the justice of God displayed on the cross for all of us. So first, Peter declares this Jesus whom you crucified. Second, but whom God raised from the dead. So second is the declaration, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the face of this judge and jury, Peter does not back down he steps up even more. And knowing these Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't sway Peter, he didn't cave into peer pressure, didn't cave into the pressure. Instead, he stood up and boldly said, This God, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And this is the fundamental declaration of the Christian faith that sets us apart. These Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection must have took Peter's message as a personal affront. But it's still the truth. It's still the truth. And the resurrection was big news around Jerusalem. And this council would be well aware of the controversy that had arisen over this Jesus who was crucified. And this Jesus who purportedly was raised from the dead. This resurrection has, has evidence. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel stories of this encounter, you would see a few things come out in the evidence of the resurrection. First of all is the number of people that are known to have seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection. You may be thinking, well, it's just a handful. It was like his disciples. It was a few women. No, no. 1 Corinthians goes on to tell us over 500 people saw Jesus alive. 500 people saw Jesus after they knew he had died on a cross, been placed in a grave. 500 people saw him alive. 
And so even at this time when Peter's preaching this message, there are witnesses all around town who knew and who had experienced this same thing. Another evidence that the resurrection was true, that the enemies of God gave no evidence to the contrary. All they would have had to have done to refute the resurrection is say, he didn't rise from the grave. Look, here's his body. There was no evidence that could be given to refute this. The transformed lives of the disciples is said to be one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection because here's what happened. These disciples who saw Jesus with their own eyes, they were then given a message and they went out and they preached this message of a risen Jesus to the ends of the earth. And many of them were martyred for their faith. They were martyred for their message. They were killed because of what they believed and what they spoke of. How many people would die for a lie? Wouldn't at some point, if, if they were lying, if they were making this up, they'd say, whoa, whoa, just kidding. It was a joke. He wasn't, he, he really didn't come back. He's dead. They died speaking this message, declaring this truth. There's some theories that were common at that time to explain away the resurrection. One was called a swoon theory. And what it mean was, what it said was, Jesus didn't really die on a cross. He actually just sort of passed out. And they took this passed out body, laid him in a tomb, and then he woke up, and then he walked away. He, just, he wasn't really dead. He passed out. But the scriptures tell us there was no doubt in the minds of the Roman soldiers. There was no doubt in the people who were there. Jesus had died. There was another view called the theft theory that said the disciples sort of did a stealth ninja kind of operation. They went in and they stole the body of Jesus and just made up a lie that he had resurrected. That he was just actually stolen from them. My favorite view of this is called the wrong tomb theory because you know the women were the first to get to the tomb. The wrong tomb theory says the, the women back in those days like some women today are bad with directions and they simply went to the wrong tomb. All that to say this. Not only is this message that Peter is preaching the truth of scripture, it's also credible. The evidence from those times, it could have been overturned, it could have been argued, but it wasn't. It was an argument for silence. And so if, if Jesus has really risen from the grave, what does that mean? Doesn't it call us to live another kind of life? Doesn't it call us out of mediocrity? Doesn't it call us to not settle for just what we can do on our own, but to, to strive for what God has for us? Romans 8, 11 says it this way. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, if the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is, a, is alive in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which lives in you. That if Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead is really alive in us, and that's what scripture says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit lives in you then the same spirit that brought Jesus to life from the grave will give life to your mortal bodies. And not just a life to squeak by, not just to make it through the day, will give you overcoming life, will give you abundant life, will give you purpose and meaning beyond anything you can imagine. I'm not sure, do you want that kind of life? Are you there? You tracking with me? This is the, the, the assurance of Scripture. 
The declaration, and this is what I'm saying today, I am so grateful for that. We don't have to settle. We don't have to just be average. We can say, God, we don't want to just see the norm. We want to see the extraordinary happen in our lives, in our midst. Not because of who we are, God, but because of who you are. So first of all, it's the crucifixion. Second, the resurrection. Third, in verse 11, Peter says this describing Jesus. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, or, or literally the cornerstone. This is where we get the name for our church. That Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and has now become the cornerstone. If you were to go over to the student center, there's a rock, uh, and on that rock, 1 Peter 2.6 is inscribed, and it says this, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So here's what's happening. In the, in the Old Testament, there's references to this idea in Psalm 118 and in Isaiah 28. And there's this reference to this, this building that's being built, this kingdom that's being built. And it's referencing that, that there's a, a stone that's going to be rejected, but that will become the cornerstone. And, and what we have to know is, back in those days, they didn't have the levels, they didn't have the rulers. And so when they're building a, a big building, they would start with this cornerstone that was perfectly square. They had chiseled it out of rock, and that cornerstone would be the, the guide that they used to build the rest of the building. It would be the thing that keeps it level, the thing that keeps the walls straight and all of that. The cornerstone was instrumental, foundational to the building. And way, 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 way back in Psalms and Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, there's prophecies that say the stone that is going to be given by God, the builders, these religious builders, these religious guys who had ideas of how the kingdom should be, you will reject him. You'll reject Jesus, but God is going to make him the cornerstone. God is going to make him foundational. And without an understanding of who he is, without an acceptance and belief in who he is, you're on the wrong foundation. Jesus said it this way himself in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." So here's what's being said. The, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of who we are as a church and who we are as people calling ourselves followers of Christ is Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. So, so what this is, is at the core, the bottom of who we are, it's our identity, is we are followers of Christ. And so the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we really? Is that really our identity, our fundamental identity? At the bottom of who you are, the bottom of why you do what you do, the motivation of your heart deep down, is it for Christ? Are there other competing identities 
want to be successful, want to be accepted, want to be noticed. That override and pervert that fundamental identity of we are Christ's. He is our cornerstone personally. This is a call to discover what we're really living for. A call to discover our identity in him as his special sons and daughters. Number four, look in verse 12. Peter continues and says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so Peter is making a very exclusive claim. He's making a claim that gets those of us who believe in the Bible in a lot of trouble sometimes. He gets, he's making a claim that for some of us is very hard to make, very hard to live out in this society, very hard to take a stand and keep that stand in the midst of friends that we run with. But here's the claim that he says again. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name in heaven by which we must be saved. There's a movie coming on ABC tonight, and I was flipping through the channels the other day, um, and I just caught a glimpse of, of the Dr. Phil show, our good buddy Dr. Phil. And I don't watch the Dr. Phil show, but the topic caught my interest. It, it, was, it was a few guys that are actors in this movie, and it's about this African-American pastor from inner city Detroit who was an ex-drug dealer, spent a lot of time in prison, now he's a pastor, in a relationship with this other rabbi, this old, old rabbi. Um, it's from Mitch Album, so it's another one of his stories. But the, the trailer for this movie, it has this old rabbi asking a man um, that, that's a friend of his to do his eulogy. And so they're walking around having a conversation, and this man asked the rabbi, um, he's a Jew as well, if our religion is so special, how can you be so supportive of other religions? The rabbi looks at his young friend and says, did God make trees? Uh, yeah. And the rabbi says, well, why trees? Why not a tree? And the young man's sort of puzzled. And the rabbi says, maybe faith is the same. Many trees, the branches all going up to him. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? Sounds cute and clever, but it's seductive. And it does not line up with Scripture. And so we have a choice that we have to make. That sounds good to our ears. And it makes sense to us, you know, inclusive, big, broad. But then you read scripture and it says, salvation is found in no other name under heaven except Jesus Christ. You read Jesus in John 4, 14, verse 5. The disciples, he's telling them he's going to leave and be with the Father. And Thomas says to him in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answers him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, this, this portrait of a, of a tree with branches all going to heaven, there's different branches and there's different ways to get up. It's one of those kind of times like where we're Peter in front of the, the council and we have a decision to make. Do we believe it and accept it and take a stand for it? 
Or are we wishy-washy and just tell everybody what they want to hear? The truth of Scripture is this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And we're being called to take a stand. We're being called to believe. We're being called to declare this, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. And, and you may say, but, but, but that, that just doesn't make sense because not everybody believes that way. And so I, I, would, I would ask you then, what is our alternative? What do we do? Do we take a poll of the thousand people in this room and let everybody say their opinion and everybody else say their opinion and what makes sense to us? Or at some point do we have to say, we don't know it all. There has to be an authority bigger than ourselves. And we will base our views, our ideas, not on our opinions, but off of the truth of Scripture and off of something else. And not in some unloving and arrogant and, and bigoted way of condemning other people, but in love, just as God gave Christ for us in love, taking a stand for truth, declaring and proclaiming the truth is what Christ says it is. But, but here's the dilemma. This is a, this is a big, a big conversation. And it requires that all of us dig in a little deeper. It requires that all of us investigate to say, what is true? I mean, this is important. The magnitude of the claims that Jesus are, is making, it, it demands that we look into it, that we, we search after it. I mean, it's a big claim. I mean, it's, it's bigger than needing to rush home and see who wins the Cardinals or the Rams. I can pretty much tell you that one already, the way things have been going. It's bigger than saying uh, who's going to win, the, the Bears or the Raiders. It, 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 that, some of us want to rush out and we're already checking in on our phone what are going on. But this is a, a claim that requires us to seek out some answers. I mean, it's like this. Let's say uh, you get an envelope in the mail and you, you get this envelope out and it says, please read urgent IRS information. And you, you open it up, and you're like, this just doesn't even look right. Why would I be getting this letter? And it says, you owe $55,000. And you're like, $55,000? I don't even make that much. I've never seen that much money in my life. And you think because it doesn't make sense to you and because it doesn't look like it may be real, you just wad it up and... Whoosh. Let me just promise you, that's not going to go well for you. The magnitude of that claim requires that you need to investigate it a little bit. You need to look into it. Years ago, we were living back in Chicago, and we got this envelope in the mail, one of those big ones. And, and I'm carrying it back to the house, and, and I see it's from the law offices of so-and-so and so-and-so, and it's a big package. So I walk in, Holly, what did you do this time? And so I'm opening it up and trying to, to figure out, and it's, it's talking about this lady that was in our church, and I had spent time with her in the hospital, and um, got to be part of her funeral service as, after she passed away from cancer. And it said, this lady had written me into her will. And I was like, ah, there's no way. That's crazy. So I just wadded it up and threw it away. Of course not. I picked up the phone as fast as I could. I called the lawyer. I was like, what in the world is this? Is this true? And he's like, well, absolutely it's true, Mr. McCray. And I'm like, yes. Because I couldn't take something like that at face value. I had to know more. I had to look into it. How much more today? Do the declarations of Scripture call for us to look deeply into their truths before we decide? 
go after God, to, to, to pray and to ask him to reveal, to seek. Because there's some of us here today, you've already made up your mind, but you've never really given him a fair shot. You've already made up your mind, that stuff, that's, that's fairy tale-ish. But you've never really sought there's some of us today who we say we believe it, but we've never really went after it enough. And although we say with our lips we believe, our lives that we live tell a different story. And I believe Christ would say to us, if you claim that the Spirit who brought Christ back from the grave lives inside of you, and you don't live any differently... Something's not right. Maybe for some of us today is that second chance. That day where we can discover the life that God has for us. We could discover that on that cross, Christ took our sins, our guilt, our shame, and he wants to set us free today. That we would discover that this resurrection of Jesus does really break the power of sin. It does set us free from things that have held us back for a long time. Give us the victory over life, the, the newness of life that we so desperately want and need. Today we just need to, to pray that God would disturb us because here's the reality. Sometimes God brings disturbances in our lives and those disturbances either make us harder or they make us more like Him. Look at Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were unschooled. They were ordinary. There was nothing special about them, but God loves to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. God loves to take the people who are nobodies and say, but I'm going to use you in a great way to make a difference. God specializes in that kind of a thing. And the people looked at Peter and John, and they didn't give Peter and John all the credit. They said, we see them. They must have been with Jesus because they look just like him. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us look more like you today. I pray that the love and the grace that is found in you would be true of us today. I pray that you would open up our eyes in a new way to understand that you gave your life for us. And in laying down your life on that cross, our sins were paid for. And if we would believe in you and turn to you, we could be forgiven and set free. That in the resurrection, you broke the power of sin, broke the power of death and hell. And you, Holy Spirit, who brought Christ from the grave, desire to bring new life into us and set us free. God, we pray today, disturb us. Break us out of our complacency. Break us out of our apathy. Lead us to a place right now where during communion we worship you, we respond, but also, God, we repent. That we turn from our sins and we turn to you 
And Holy Spirit, make us look like Jesus, we pray. Amen. In this time of reflection and response, the ushers are already here. We're going to worship by giving our tithes and our offerings. In just a moment, they'll come and they'll pass out the crackers. And I want you to hold those crackers in your hand. I want you to believe and, and, and remember what Christ has done for you on a cross. And in a moment, Brian will step up and Brian will lead us corporately in a time of taking that together. And then they'll come and they'll pass out the cups and I want you to hold that and, and remember the blood of Christ shed for you. And after that second song, I'll come back out and lead us in a time of taking the, the cup together. This is a time of worship, a time of remembrance, a time of giving back to God.